Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department Podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is Society of Illustrators Hall of Fame inductee, Barbara Nessam. Picture this. We're at Pratt Institute in the 1950s. In the middle of a sea of black-clad, starving artists is Barbara, wearing colorful clothing on her way to blazing a trail for women in art. Among other topics, Barbara and I look back on the early days of her illustrious career, starting at Pratt. She shares what it was like being one of the very few women working in illustration in the 1960s, including hanging out with Milton Glaser, Tommy Ungerer, and Gloria Steinem. And Barbara explains why you don't need to fit in. You just need to be you. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I asked Seymour Quast what it was like growing up in the Bronx in the 1930s and 40s. I'll ask you the same thing, just different decade or decades. What was it like for you in the Bronx in the 40s and 50s? Well, it was great because I lived at the end of the Grand Concourse The Bronx was uh, my center. I think the first time I went down to Manhattan, I was 14. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, we really never, I never, the Bronx was my nucleus. Your whole world was within two or three blocks. And it was great. I loved it. We had a dancing school, Marjorie Marshall's dancing school, which Penny Marshall who is from Laverne and Shirley. Of course. Was, that was her mother. Mm-hmm. And so she was, we were all in the dancing school together. And it was very cosmopolitan in a very weird way. Mm-hmm. And Gary Marshall, who was the son, yep. did all those programs. Uh, I don't know which ones. I know Laverne and Shirley, but sure. a lot of oh, other yeah. ones as well. He's yep. very well known. Of course. Was. So it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun, but I had nothing to compare it to right. because that's the only thing I knew. But I know that when I was about 12, I knew that it was important that it was born in New York City. And I got, <laughs> down, I got down on my hands and knees facing the window in my bedroom and said, dear God, thank you so, so much for having me be born in New York City. I I don't, instead of Kansas, sure. I had no idea what Kansas was like right. or any of the other places, but I knew that where I was born was important to me. Yeah. Um, after this interview, I'm going to tell all three of my children what you just told me, because all three of them were born in New York City. So I'm going to oh. just tell them, you know, you should be lucky that you were born in New York City. Yeah, I really felt lucky. I, 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 I just knew this was the place that I needed to be born. Sure. It's a, it's a great place to grow up. It is. It can be. It can be, I think, is a more accurate yeah. way of saying that. Um, I read that your parents sort of carved a little corner out in their bedroom for you yes. to have like a little studio. Yeah. We had a tiny little apartment. <laughs> we had a, went two bedrooms. Right. My mother and father had one, and my brother, sister, and I had the other. And we also had a 
um, a housekeeper who lived with us part time and she slept in the bedroom too mm. so, on a fold out bed. So it, it was very tight, but I didn't feel it was tight mm-hmm. and I didn't feel it was weird. And then when my brother got to be 16, he moved to the living room <laughs> and I think he slept to the, on the floor in the living yeah. room. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, it was a very familiar family, familiar mm-hmm. way of living. Sure. Our neighbors were my neighbors the whole time I was growing up. Nobody mm-hmm. ever changed. Uh, Vivian lived next door to me, and she was my best friend. And my sister's best friend, who's my sister's two years younger than me, her best friend was Rhina, who lived the, the on the second next door. Right. So we never locked our doors. We were in and out of the our apartment. So it was like a big apartment of the three, three apartments that we lived in. Yeah. What led you to decide to attend Pratt? To attend Pratt? Yeah. When I was 14, I went to a woman Memorial park in central park, ice skating, and I broke my leg (laughs) and I was on home instruction. And I used to call that my lucky break because (laughs) (laughs) I had home instruction. I had three hours of art Uh by Julie Howard Mall. And the rest of the time, I was just drawing and painting and just doing whatever I was doing. And it was a lot of freedom. And it really, it was my last, I was in the ninth grade. So it was my last year of junior high school. And Julie Howard Mall said to me, you're like a sponge. You pick up everything right away. And she told my mother that this, she, I should go to the high school of industrial art and then to Pratt. And that's what I did. She mapped it out for me and I followed instructions and I didn't even know there was a Cooper union. I didn't know anything more than that. Right. Right. And that, that's how I got to Pratt. So you're attending Pratt Institute from everything I've read. The picture in my mind is that everyone around you is wearing black, listening to jazz, reading Kerouac, smoking cigarettes. Meanwhile, you're in the middle of this like black sea of the serious and the suffering artist wearing colorful clothing. You've made yourself. You've got high heels on. You're going to go dancing. So it just seemed like you were kind of against the grain and so to speak in terms of like what what people were doing. I was totally against the grade. <laughs> I just thought, you know, everybody was like starving and suffering. Right. You know, they were so serious. It was like, you know, you'd think the world was coming to an end every day. <laughs> like, this was not me. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. Okay. You, the world can come to the end for you, but not for me. Mm. And I loved Latin dancing. I still love it. Mm-hmm. Like salsa. Mm-hmm. I still love it, even at my age, when we can go dancing again from the pandemic. But, 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 but. Soon enough. So I used to come into school. I made all my own clothes because my mother was a clothing designer. She Mm -hmm. was a blouse designer. But we always had a sewing machine set up in in her bedroom. And uh, anytime I wanted to have a new dress, I would just, on the the dining room table, I would just sit there and cut out some material, yeah. sew it up and have a new dress for the next day of school. And if my friends came over and slept over, 
on the floor, obviously, because there's no room. Right. Uh, I would make them a blouse and make me a blouse, and then we would go to school like twins. Yeah. But as I, you know, everything worked out somehow. Right. I read that um, you had a professor by the name of Walter Murch who Walter saw some of your personal work and mm-hmm. you told him there were just sort of some things you were doing kind of on the side and he, they weren't really anything. These are your words. Um, and this interaction led him to say to you, well, what do you think art is? Art mm-hmm. is something you do for yourself. And I don't really have a question. I just wanted to bring that quote into the conversation Because I think it's important for artists to hear this. Personal work often leads to a more fulfilling and longer-running career. Other than that sort of revelatory moment for you, how did personal work support your professional career? Well, you know, I never thought that I was going to be an illustrator. I thought that the only reason I took illustration was because... I, in high school, because I went to the high school of industrial art and I took up advertising, I took fashion illustration and uh, watercolor and, you know, whatever the the thing was. So I felt like I knew advertising, which I didn't, but (laughs) I felt like I did. And I knew fashion illustration and I knew uh, whatever. I wasn't going to be an interior designer. That totally was out of Mm -hmm. the question. And when I went to Pratt, our foundation year, we had a choice to go into advertising mm-hmm. or go into illustration, and which was graphic arts and illustration, and go into interior design or whatever the other uh, uh, majors were. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't intermix them. But so I thought the thing I know the least about is illustration. So I love learning, and I thought, you know. I'll go into illustration because even though I'm not going to be an illustrator, at least I'll learn something. I feel like I know about advertising and I know about some of the other things. And that's how I got to go into illustration. But I never thought I was going to be an illustrator Mm. because illustrators starved and suffered (laughs) along with painters. And they wore black and they smoked cigarettes. And they wore black. (laughs) No, everyone in my class thought that I would never be an illustrator Mm -hmm. that I would never, I was just going to go out and get married because I wore high heels, lipstick, you know, my hair was always, I I look good. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, it was like, no, this, this woman is not going to be an artist. You know, she's like, and I don't make any bones about it. There was no, I had no interest in being an illustrator. Right. But you become one. Kind of right off I the have. bat, because <laughs> it, in 1960, you graduated from Pratt. You win an award from the Society of Illustrators. Right. And at that time, you could count probably on two hands how many women there were on the professional stage in illustration at the time. What was it like beginning an illustration career in what Time Out calls this the heady male-dominated art world of the 1960s? Who knew? I had no idea that I was one of the few women going to be an illustrator. No idea. And actually, when I graduated school, like 
what I did was I looked in the New York Times. Then you could look in the New York Times to look for work. And any job that I saw that had illustration, I applied for. And I, while I was in school, I did these little drawings of handbags for like $5 a piece or uh, for a little company called Master Matrix. And I got another job. I was kind of very enterprising because, you know, I didn't have any money. My father was a, worked in the post office. My mother was a designer, but, you know, we I had brothers and sisters and we kind of cobbled together a, a living. <clears throat> so I always had to support myself, which I was happy about. No problem. Right. And I just thought that this is how I'm going to make a living. I'm going to bring my portfolio. Oh, and then I, um, Bob Weaver, Robert Weaver was one of my teachers in school yeah. who I wasn't that fond of. I had Robert Weaver. And the one thing that Pratt had in the last, my last semester was great. They had Bob Gill, Robert Weaver, who passed away a while, quite a while ago. He was one of my teachers. Uh, Neil Fujita, who was a designer and one other illustrator, but they, mm. we had, four teachers in one semester. Mm -hmm. And that class was really exciting because it broke it up into four weeks of this person, four weeks of this person, four weeks and four weeks. This is right before I was graduating. And it was Bob Gill and, and Robert Weaver who really kind of uh, made, really liked my work and gave me encouragement. Mm -hmm. And then when I got out of school, I'd be walking in the street with my portfolio and I would bump into everybody. I would bump into Bob Weaver. I'd bump into Bob Gill. I would bump into, yeah. you know, and so I, they became my friends and they, we had like, I had like a little support system and Bob Weaver took, uh, would invite me to his house. He had like a Friday night little get together with some friends, Tom Allen, Tommy Ungera. Yeah. Do you know who Tommy Ungera is? Oh, I do. I actually oh, have I actually have a question about him. Yeah, Tommy oh, yeah. Ungera, Bob Weaver, sure. uh, Tom Allen, who was very good illustrator as yeah. well, yeah. and and me, and every and and their uh, their wives or whatever. And yeah. every weekend we would be at their house, and it was just that's incredible. They they really encouraged me to put my work into the Society of Illustrators that Bob did. Yeah, Weaver. And I did, and I got a special mention award, and I couldn't believe it. It was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing! And it was the second show that they had, the Society of Illustrators. Mm. The they, the first show I think was in '59. I think the second show was in '60 or '61. Yeah. They had a book out from yeah. that show, so that was they were the Society of Illustrators was just getting the getting that they should have shows, annual sure. shows. But you didn't, so you're mentioning all these amazing illustrators, but none of them are women. So you you, you just didn't, it just didn't, I didn't you didn't see on, it? It didn't occur to you? Because I never thought of myself as a woman. I, I, I never thought of it as, as being, I never thought that being a woman was going to be a hindrance of any sort. And you didn't experience that? You didn't experience no. any... I never experienced it. Maybe wow. because I was just oblivious. I was like, <laughs> oh, like I was, you know, very positive all the time. Right. And maybe if somebody did say something negative, I just didn't hear it. And I really never got, you know, 
is an expression then hit on from an art director. I would show yeah. my work. I was very professional. Sure. You know, no nonsense. I mean, I wasn't like coquettish or whatever. Yeah. Like I'm strictly business and here's my work and okay. I'm going to show you what I'm doing. And Bob Weaver told me to come and see you. And sure. when this art director told me to come and see you, I was always yeah. referred to somebody. Henry Wolf told me to come and see you. This. Yeah, I get you. So I was very professional and yeah. they were professional to me. And I, I had no idea I was one of the only women. Wow. Um, so by this time, so now we're like in the mid sixties. Yeah. And Put- you know, why? wait, you know why I had no idea about it? Because I never was in an aggregate of people that were, you know, like there was never a time when I was in a, a place where there was only men and just me. Okay. Only men illustrators and just me. Mm-hmm. I never, never. Mm. And also, most of the women when we got out of school got married, and I knew I was not getting married. <laughs> there was no way that I was going to get married. Sure. I wanted to make a living, yeah. and the only time I would think about getting married is if I could support myself. Yeah. So this is we're talking about the mid '60s now, and by this time. Pushpin Studios, which was founded in 1954 by Milton Glaser and Seymour Quast and Ed Sorrell and Reynold Ruffins, was going strong. Right. So this is happening. Meanwhile, you're dating Robert Weaver and you're friends with Tommy Ungerer. Um, So there's this, I mean, these are all, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how else do you describe them other than like legendary artists of the time? I mean. I do have a question about Reynold Ruffins because when people Reynold talk Ruffins, you're saying Reynold Ruffins. Yeah. I, he was the only one I really didn't know. Well, that's of all that's those people. Wild. I did not know him well at all because Pushpin studios, he, by the time he was at Pushpin studios, the people who were out there was just, uh, Milton Seymour and, um, one other person, was maybe it? even Jim McMullen was there. Okay. At Pushpin. Sure. And and was Ed uh, was Ed Sorrell at Ed, there? Well, no, I didn't know Ed Sorrell that well either. Okay. But uh at that time, I, anyway. I met him a few times. I met Reynold Ruffins a few times, but I that that wasn't anybody who I really knew. Yeah. I can't say that I knew them. Or Ed Sorrell. Sure. I just um the reason I wanted to bring up Reynold Ruffins is because um when I do research, when I just, you know, when you do any kind of research on Pushpin Studios, it's usually I'll see maybe, you know, half of the time I'll see, you know, founded by Seymour Quast, Milton Glaser, Ed Sorrell. That's it. And Reynold Ruffins is, is doesn't isn't doesn't get a mention except if you visit Milton Glaser's website. I mean, he's passed, obviously, but the site still has him as a as a co-founder of you know, Reynold Ruffins. And I. I don't know. I just feel like he doesn't get discussed as much as the other three. And, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to and just I, throw it throw. I, a, I don't know how long he was there, though. I don't think long. he was there that long. No, because I remember I used to go up to Pushpin Studios a lot in the very beginning when I was taking my portfolio around because I lived in the Bronx. And so if you live in the Bronx, you don't have a an appointment every single minute of the day. So maybe there's three hours. I'm not going to go back to the Bronx. And so I would go up to some p- 
push pin and hang out there for an hour or two before I went to my next appointment or I'd go to uh, uh, Bob Gill's house or I would go to this person's house or because I or I'd go up to see an art director that I knew I could just drop in on. so, but I don't remember Reynold Ruffins being at Pushpin Studios. Well, he left. He only, he was only there for ten years. He left in the '60s. He left around the same time we're talking about and formed right. his own design studio with Sims right. Tayback. Sims S- Tayback. I knew Sims too. Yeah. 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 So you're all just hanging out. All of y'all. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. I mean, yeah. That is just we all knew each other. We would all. We would all be seeing each other in the streets. We're all carrying portfolios <laughs> and we would be going to really, if you just think there was Madison Avenue, sure, this 10 block radius and just and 42nd street to wherever. Yep. And we were all in the streets walking around with our portfolios, just like these big just black like... things, except I had a little one. I got the uh, idea to put my tear sheets in lamination. So I had a little eight and a half by 11, nice little mm-hmm. leather case that I was walking around with. I didn't look like an artist. You look like a <laughs> I professional. Was like, I didn't right. have a big portfolio to schlep around. Yeah. I had this little beautiful case yeah. and I would show my work. And the fact that I had 20 pieces in lamination, art directors would say to me, wow, this is great. Where did you get this done? And I told them where I got it done and everything. Three years later, everybody had their work in lamination. <laughs> wow, you're just you're just trailblazing all over the place. Now you're trailblazing with how people present their work and just be, you yeah. know. Uh, I gosh. did. I did. I that I, I can That's say that I really, amazing. I I changed that whole genre of how people showed their work. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Obviously, if you're going to take a few online classes, I'd like you to choose the illustration department. Judging by our attendance numbers, you most definitely are. But if you take a Skillshare class or two, no hard feelings. Skillshare is offering listeners of the Illustration Department podcast a free trial of premium membership. In addition to some fascinating, quick classes on drawing and painting, they have classes on topics including productivity, freelance and entrepreneurship, digital painting, creative writing, and more. In fact, I'm writing a book on illustration. I'm having a very tough time writing those first paragraphs, let alone that first word. Some of you might relate. So I'm taking Skillshare's Creative Writing for All, a 10-day journaling challenge led by Emily Gold to kickstart my writing process. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ID, where you will get a free trial of premium membership. That's two weeks free at Skillshare.com ID. And now, Back to our conversation. Um, I wanted to. Can we touch on Tommy Ungerer for just a minute? So you were friends with Tommy Ungerer, and yeah. were you close to him when the children's publishing world blacklisted him? Mm-hmm. Uh, he created a book on erotica, and mm-hmm. the children's publishing community found that to be unacceptable. So they blacklisted right. him. They banned his books. Right. They all quite literally or almost literally yeah. ran him out of town. Right. Overnight. We're talking about much. Tommy effing Ungerer. Ungerer. Here. So I know. what, I mean, what do you remember about, uh, what do you remember about that time? Well, Tommy was a character. He was 
a man of his own, you know, he was very strong. He was, he wasn't like the other illustrators in the sense that he was, he also was a fine artist. You know, he might've been an illustrator in quotes because, you know, you needed to make a living, but really in his heart of hearts, he wasn't really an illustrator. Bob Weaver was an illustrator. Tom Allen was an illustrator. Uh, Milton Glaser was an illustrator designer, uh, but in the Tommy was an artist and a c- complete original and totally didn't follow any rules. He was wild. He was a wild person. Right. And I was very lucky that I got to see him. He had a show at the drawing center about five or six years ago. And I went to the drawing center because he he went to Newfoundland or wherever Iceland. Right. Or, yeah, I mean he left he really left the country. Fought. He and his family left the country. Yes, he left the country. He left the country, and he was born in that little space like Alsace Lorraine, you know, uh, not Germany, not France, not just a little Alsace Lorraine. He would talk about that uh, that experience. Yeah, but when he left the country, I didn't see him anymore. Sometimes we wrote letters or something, but, you know, we didn't really see each other. But when I saw him at the drawing center, uh, he was already in a wheelchair. And I went over to him and I whispered in his ear who I was. And he was so happy to see me. It was like such a great reunion. Uh, But I hadn't seen him in years. Mm -hmm. And we we were a kindred spirit, Tommy and I. And that those times that we sent, spent at Bob Weaver's house, those evenings, he was hysterical all the time. That's kept everyone laughing. Yeah. He he was really an, an incredible original in every single way you can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wonder what it, what the publishing and the art world really would have been like had he not been run out. And I mean, he's, he, it's not like he stopped creating art, but had he right. stayed in the States, um, he was angry about that. I mean, he yeah, couldn't I can't believe imagine. it because they're so prudy, you know, like so erotica. So like, you know, look at now, sure. <laughs> you know, what's going on now, but yeah. everybody was such a prude. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wish, I wish I had the opportunity to talk to him cause I, that's, I would have wanted to. Yeah. Like a 90s. In 1973, I had done a series of called Women Girls, where I had the pubic area of the women girls uh, for my, my own my own work. Because yeah. I always did my own work while I did illustration. I would do seven pieces for me and one for them. Right. Eight pieces for me, one for them. So I always did my own work. Yeah. And the women girls had their vagina, well, their pubic area exposed. Yeah. Very daintily, they had this little little panty with the pubic area exposed. And I showed that in Soho when Soho first started. And to be honest, it was on the second floor. I was afraid that I would be arrested for um, pornography. Uh. Totally afraid. And we put posters up and people put the posters down. Mm. I mean – that that was 73. So when Tommy in the 60s did his erotica, mm-hmm. you know, people were so vagina 
pubic area like, phobic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like... Yeah. Um, and Tommy fit into that, and he wasn't taking it. Right. So he decided, I'm just going to leave, and he wasn't American anyway. So just changing gears kind of slightly related, related, but changing gears. Um, so for six years, you were roommates with Gloria Steinem, and as you describe it, she wrote in her corner, you illustrated in your corner. Right. <laughs> How did the two of you meet? I was going out with Henry Wolf, who was an art director for uh, Esquire and Show Magazine and a million different other magazines. He was wonderful. And she was going out with Robert Benton, who was the art director of Esquire as well, like a associate art director. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. He and Henry were friends. Bob and Henry were friends. So mm -hmm. we used to double date. And, you know, when you double date, you talk to the women and the guys sit and talk to each other. So we became friends and yeah. I was still living at home. My sister wanted to move out. So she kind of like my younger sister, come on, let's move out. Let's move out. And I, okay. Okay. What the, I mean, it's not so bad living at home. <laughs> so no, 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 we got to, we, we're going to move out. So we found a, an apartment, a one room apartment, Isidore Seltzer, who was also, part of Pushpin at that time. Uh, he had an apartment and he said, there's an apartment, one room available up above me. Uh, maybe you might be interested in it. So I looked at it and my sister and I looked at it, go, okay, we'll take it. We took this apartment, 8 West 71st Street. And after four months, my sister didn't like living there and moved back home. And so <laughs> there I was in my apartment, which I didn't want to, leave anyway but right. I wasn't going to move back home I was already in New York so I was complaining at dinner one night that to Gloria and like my sister moved out on me oh my god she goes oh do you mind if I come and live with you and I said no come on up come on over and then we lived there for I don't know a couple of months and then uh we found another apartment a better situation of one room mm -hmm. on 22 West 56th Street, which the building no longer is there. And we lived there for the bulk of the time that we lived together, which was a very well laid out one room apartment mm -hmm. for two people to live in. And she had furniture. I didn't. I only had map and chart drawers where I put my thing and I had my drawing table. But she had came with a lot of furniture. So it just worked out perfectly. Mm. And we, it, it, you know, we're six years apart. So I'm 22 and she's 28. She's interested in politics. Politics, believe me, I couldn't care less about politics. Every politician lies. <laughs> and that's what I would tell her. They all lie. Mm -hmm. What do I want to know about politics? I'm a Democrat. I vote Democratic. I'm not, you know, I'll help you with the, any kind of artwork that you'd like for me to do for political things. But... I'm not interested in politics, but she was always interested in politics. So we weren't, we, we weren't friends, but I was interested in dancing and going out and having a good time and being with uh, Bob Weaver and Bob Gill and all the people that right. I was friends with. And, and she had her, her little code of friends. So mm -hmm. yes, we lived together during the day, but in the evenings we were out doing other things. 
My favorite Steinem story related to illustration has to be when she and illustrator Susan Pearl infiltrated a Turkish bathhouse for women. Uh, It was for an article that they were co-writing for Harvey Kurtzman's Help magazine. Okay. Steinem was Kurtzman's assistant at the time. This was this was 1961, so right, maybe a little bit before. I I didn't know her then. Yeah. Um, So the article is called "We Were Spies in a Lady's Turkish Bath." Did you know Susan Pearl? No, I never even heard of her. Oh, I don't. Susan Pearl. She was this unbelievable illustrator. Just, I mean, on the. On par with a Tommy Ungerer, a Shel Silverstein, like that kind of drawing wow. style. Wow, that's great. I know Harvey Kurtzman. Sure. I but uh, Pearl fled the Nazis and she became a she became a prolific children's book illustrator and she knew Steinem. So I was hoping that somehow you knew Pearl because there's, there's so little I'm about gonna, her. I'm going to write her name down. Could you write her name down? Yeah. Because I don't know her at all, and I would love to look up her. Darn it. Her, who she is, and um, I probably would have loved to have known her. Yeah, at that she point. is but incredible. Harvey Kurtzman was fantastic. Can he you was, share just the one story about Kurtzman? Well, we... I would say, like, uh, 1966... Esquire magazine needed somebody to do scouting for, I would take any job. Somebody give me a job, I take it. You're paying me, I'm going to take the job. Scouting locations from Florida to California in four different places, Um, Mississippi, uh, Nevada, California, Florida. And I went there ahead of time, uh, scouted locations and met Harvey Kurtzman, Maurice Jarr, Laura Jar, who was the, uh, her name was Laura Devon at the time. She was the model and the photographer. And we all traveled across the country together for two weeks. And Harvey Kurtzman is one of the funniest people Mm -hmm. I know, Mm -hmm. I knew. And when you spend that kind of time together with someone, you are bonded for life. Sure. And he was one of my favorite, favorite, favorite people. Yep. Um, so let's fast forward to the early 80s. You're experimenting with digital painting. You were quite literally one of the first digital painters. That is a true statement. Um, yes. You said some friends and colleagues thought you were betraying yes. them by going digital, quote, right. unquote. Um, what... I mean, what were they afraid I, of? What were they saying to you? By giving it credence. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I was like, why would you be upset with me for go, for tr- working with computers? Well, firstly, the the way I got interested in computers, it's 1980. Uh, somebody at MIT, a guy named Peter Spackman, who I did work for in the early 60s uh, for Columbia, for one of the colleges, I don't remember. He moved on and went. And he was um, working at MIT and he called me up and said, would you like to learn how to do art on the computer? And I thought, art on the computer, hmm. Uh, It intrigued me, but I had just gotten married and my husband had two girls that were living with us. I I thought, yeah, yeah, no, I want to go to MIT, which is in Boston. I'm living in New York. 
uh, I'm not single, you know, I'm not free to kind of do whatever I want to do. I mean, I am, but at sure. that point it was yeah. not the yeah, right responsibilities. Time. Sure. And I kept t- telling him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm coming up. I'm going to come up there and learn. But I asked everyone I knew, what do you know about computers? Right. What do you know about computers and art? Nobody knew anything. And by 1982, I asked enough people that Time Incorporated had a little secret enclave up in their 51st floor, a whole floor called Time Video Information Services. And they invited me to be artist in residence. And I could work five o'clock at night till nine in the morning. And they gave me a key and they gave me a voucher to take a black car home so I wouldn't have to ride the subway in the middle of the night. And I taught myself how to use computers. Well, while I was up there, I wanted them, I wanted to know other people should be using the computer too. So I asked them, I lobbied them, can I invite other artists up here to learn and I'll teach them how to use the computer that Mm -hmm. I was using? Mm -hmm. Because only one person doing a new medium is not, you need a, a more people to understand and do do something with this foreign medium that I had not no idea about that I taught myself how to do. Well, nobody wanted to come up with me. I mean, people came up and looked and looked at the machine and kicked the tires and said, no, no, not for me, not Mm -hmm. for me, not for me. I got rejected all over the place. And I thought, wow, I always thought artists were so, open to new things. This is what art is all about. You have to be open to new things. Close like a clam. <laughs> there was no moving anybody. Right. It took Giuseppe, it took till 1990 before anybody started using the computer from 1980 to 1990, 10 years. Right. Well, that was probably, I, I mean, I think Adobe probably had something to do with that. Um, I spoke with Nancy Stahl. Are Stahl. you fam- are you she familiar? Was, she was one of the early people. Yeah, and uh, yeah. she worked with a company called Charlex in New York, um, creating. <laughs> and they had these like large floor to ceiling computers. And she was yeah. working at night. Yeah. Um, it was like she would come in after hours and then right. work through the night because they were right. keeping it under wraps and things. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, she got hooked and uh, yeah. used her what she learned from tr- traditional media, transitioning it over to digital media and became right. one of the leaders of digital artistry. Yeah. I mean, it's Ad- Adobe yeah. had an early, early, uh, um, not a school exactly. They invited 25 illustrators. I was one of them. Nancy was the other one. And there were other people from all over the country to work on their Adobe uh, new system. And we went up to, I don't even know where we went, uh, but we all were in this one place for a week together. Mm -hmm. But because it was so hard to convert people to using computers. What do you think they were afraid of? Just Learning something new, uh, something unfamiliar, learning something new. They, they, they comfort, comfort, comfort. Yeah. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I know what I'm doing and I don't want to change. Yeah. Whereas myself, I, I did do new things all the time. My work was, is different in every decade. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, my work is constantly changing. Sure. 
yet it all looks like it comes from me. Well, because you are, there's only one you, there's only one artist. That's why, you know, I, I get this question a lot, you know, uh, how do I stand out uh, from the crowd as an artist? Um, when I talk to illustrators and I, my answer is always, you're already standing out. There's only one you. There's exactly. only one you. There's never been someone like you. There never will new. be someone like you. Even if your work is similar to other people's work, there's just simply no way that nobody could, like anyone else could like truly copy what you're doing and you could copy what other people are doing. You already stand out. So that's not, that's answered, done, sorted. Giuseppe, that is so true. And most people don't understand that. Uh, when yeah. I was teaching at, at, at uh, uh, SVA, I would say, there's one of you and there's one of me. And you can't be me because I'm taken. <laughs> you have to be you. Yeah. You know, so you think your job is to find out who you are as an illustrator or as a as a person or exactly. whatever. Right. There's only one of you. Right. And then just whatever that is, work at, yeah. uh, you know, trying to improve find upon that. Find out who that is. Exactly. And that is the biggest in teaching that was my mantra yeah. that, that you have to find out who you are. Do not be anybody else. Mm -hmm. You are you. Mm -hmm. And there's only one of you. And that is your job to find out what you love, who you are, and look in that mirror and look at yourself because that is you. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of looking back, if we covered everything you've done, visited every corner of history where your work has staked a claim, we would be talking forever. So Very old. when, when <laughs> I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't saying it that way. I wasn't, but you've done, you've just done so much. We just don't have the time to cover it all. So let me ask, let me ask this question. When you were standing at the V&A museum, the Victoria and Albert museum, a few years back, Taking in their retrospective of your work, did you reflect on your career at all? If so, did you come to any realization? Did you feel any kind of vindication? Let's put it this way. I take one day at a time. I don't think that, oh, I'm in the V&A, I've made it. There is no one point in my lifetime that I can say that ah, this is the pinnacle <laughs> I've made it. I was, yeah. It's just one day at a time. Yeah. And I became me because I've always been me. Right. And so I never, ever, ever, ever think that way. I think a lot of illustrators could do well to take that advice. Um, yeah. Sometimes I it's, I, when I talk to illustrators, sometimes it's, uh, well, if I, if I sign with an agent, I will have made it. Or if I get my first book deal, I will, I will make it. Um, there are these sort of weird benchmarks and it, it just doesn't work that way. No, because it's, because you don't live that way. Exactly. You live one day at a time. Yeah. You go to sleep and you get up in the morning and you go <laughs> to sleep again and you get up in the morning and that day, make the best of it. Right. Every minute, pay attention to every single minute of that day. Every moment of that day, pay attention to it because that moment is gone in the moment ago. Yeah. Another concern among many illustrators that I talk to is whether or not they fit in. You know, what was interesting uh, about what you said 
about the Victoria and Albert Museum's retrospective of your work is that for decades, you kept doing your own thing, never knowing where you, and these are your words, fit in. Um, you said you still don't know where you fit in. Yeah, so I, I is don't. it, uh, is it a, like, why do illustrators, why do I keep getting this question? Why do illustrators keep worrying about where they fit in? Should they worry about that? Is it a validity thing, a self-worth thing? I mean, perhaps more to the point, a money thing? Like, do they feel like, well, if I fit in, then I'll get the jobs? The whole idea of being an artist is that you don't fit in. <laughs> right. You, know, you don't fit in. I mean, what are you going to fit into? <laughs> Somebody else? You know, you're, you are you. And whatever you are, that is it. You're not fitting in anywhere. You are, every day is a challenge. Every yeah. day you are understanding who you are. The one thing you have to figure out is how I'm going to make a living, even if it's not an art and it's doing something else. You're, And you're still doing your own art. Like I did textile design. I did, I did a million other things right. while I was doing my own art because I didn't make a lot of money doing art and I still don't. You know, it's, I, I will take any job. And that's why I said, I looked in the New York times early yeah. on, get artist jobs. I would take it. So you take what you can, you know, that comes to you and then just leave yourself open to everything. Right. Don't, you don't own, own a style. If you have a style, don't worry about a style, just do what you do and be comfortable in what you're doing and it'll it'll be okay and also if you don't love this do not be an illustrator or an artist find what you love to do do not be an illustrator or an artist because you have a fantasy of what that is yep. because you're never going to be good at it yep. unless you love what you do you will never be good at it mm -hmm. and that's what i tell my students so in my mind, you and I are sitting in, uh, I don't know, the corner bistro or some other place in the West Village. It's warm no, outside. No, we're in France. No, we're in France. Oh, I lived in, I've lived in Manhattan. I lived in New York for 20 years. I miss it dearly, although I very much love where I am now. But, you know, I, I'd rather be in Manhattan. But if you want to be in France, let's do that. No, I don't want to be in France. Okay, good. Well, Manhattan is just fine. So let's, let's, uh, it's warm outside. We're sitting outside. We're at a cafe. It's you and me, and there's a listener with us, the listener of this episode, speaking directly to them, you know, perhaps you know, many of them are on their own creative path, their own creative journey, trying to figure out where, what their voice is, who they are. What would your last piece of advice be? Be yourself. Be yourself. Do what you love to do. Don't worry about other people and what they think about you. You are your own person and you have to find out who that person is. To learn more about Barbara, visit barbaranesum.com. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, and provide a positive rating and review. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustrationdept. In return, you'll receive our soft enamel pin, a reusable discount code for 10% off, and access to patron-only episodes we're calling Extra Credit. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. 
visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.